Welcome, welcome, welcome to another installment of Bio Talks by Black Art in America, the number one site in the world for black art news. Now also available in print and by magazine. So get your copy at blackartinamerica.com. I'm Farron Manuel here today with Tracy Ann Simmons, the Miami culture queen. And we're here for an interview of Todd Gray, artist and photographer, who has an exhibition currently on view at the Wadsworth Athenium Museum of Art in Hartford, Connecticut. How are you, Todd? Hey, I'm doing well, man. How are you doing? Doing pretty well. Uh, very to... well. I'm doing very well. I, I feel really grateful to be having this conversation with you. Um, you're basically a contemporary art superstar, so I'm, like, bowing down. <laughs> well, that definitely got a laugh out of me. <laughs> I wish I considered myself a contemporary art superstar. <laughs> Why not? Claim it. Claim it, Todd Gray. So, uh, so Todd, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, with your, you know, the your, your early work, you know, primarily focusing on uh, photography, uh, we, we wanted to know more about, you know, what made you, uh, you know, what inspired you to make this move into assemblage work and, you know, mining uh, the images that you've taken and also uh, how many images have you pulled from other sources? So how did you, you know, get into this body of work? Well, I think uh, it's when uh, I had a conversation with an artist, uh, Ghanaian Brit artist, uh, John O'Comfra, and he was uh, finishing a film on uh, the uh, theorist by the name of Stuart Hall. Um, he's Jamaican. And he was uh, saying basically, you, you need to challenge power. And you, although power, all consuming power, I guess this is the long winded answer. <laughs> uh, the the um, power, like, um, that's all consuming and is all around us, our um, our power, our strength is in resistance. And the way to resist is to be moving constantly, stay moving. Because once you're in a fixed position, you can be named. And once you're named, then the narrative changes. So to avoid that, you keep moving. And so I applied this to photography and I thought, how can I keep my images moving? And how can I challenge the canon? challenge the history of photography, challenge what is so-called art photography, challenge uh, what I was trained to do. You know, I, I, have a, I was a professor of photography at Cal State University, Long Beach for uh, 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so now here I am, I'm upending everything that I taught. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, seriously. I went to photography school too. Dawood Bay was one of my photography teachers. But oh. the teachers before him, they hated my assemblage work and my collage work on what you call bad prints from the darkroom. And now it's just so refreshing to hear that a photography professor from Cal Arts said, forget about the old rules. It's really refreshing. Well, you know, you make them to break them. You got to know the rule to break the rule. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's part of my, my idea. Mm -hmm. So I am challenging what's called normative um, behavior or no, no, what are called normative constructs. So what is it to be normal? To be normal is to basically concede your power to, because mm -hmm. each of us are individuals. I mean, 
each of us, are, you know, we're all shining stars and we all shine differently. And so I really am resisting this thing called normativity, which is, a, to me, a, a system of control. So I applied this to my art. I applied this to photography. So the first thing is, what is a photograph? A photograph is two-dimensional. It's flat. So what I did was I uh, started putting them in frames. I got used frames from South L.A. and uh, Goodwill stores and um, frames that were hanging on in people's homes. And I would put my photographs in that. And then I would place them on top of each other and I would screw them on top of each other so it became a three-dimensional object. Um, so I, and then I was getting round frames and oval frames, challenging the idea that a, you know, a photograph is supposed to be a square or a rectangle. So I was just, whatever I thought, however I thought things were supposed to be, I would challenge. Mm -hmm. um, and then I dove into my archives. I mean, I have a, I've had a place in Ghana since 2006, and I thought, you know what? Every, every photo has been made, and I've made, you know, before I was an art photographer, I was a, a commercial photographer back in the 80s and uh, 70s. And so I thought, you know, I have this immense archive of over 35 years, almost 40 years of work. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to limit myself and go into the archive. So when you see all the works, um, um, I, I, I took all the photographs except the ones from the cosmos. You know, mm -hmm. um, those were from the Hubble spacecraft, but I figure, you know, my taxes paid for that, so I'm part <laughs> of that, too. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so, so, and Todd, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, upending, and you actually upended an angel in the work uh, <laughs> Sumptuous Memories, <laughs> in, in the work Sumptuous Memories of Plundering Kings. Uh, could you could you t could you speak a bit more about that? Because it you know from there, what my take is that you know you're challenging uh, notions of religion and philosophy. You're challenging uh, paradigms, as you say in this work. Could you could you share a bit more about that? Yeah, that really comes through my understanding of uh, uh, the theorist and thinker Frantz Fanon. Folks like Frantz Fanon. It's W.E.B. Du Bois, it's Bell Hooks, it's Toni Morrison, it's all of these people I've been reading. And basically, there's something called mental colonialism. And mental colonialism is when you think that you are less than those who are in control or the colonizers, or in this case, you know, uh, Western Europeans, white people, so forth. Like, you are given messages all the time that you are other, you are less than, and after a while you go, damn, not even, not even consciously, but unconsciously you start buying into that. And I realized that I had bought into that, and I realized that I felt I had to prove myself all the time. And so, uh, you know, comparing myself to white people and how I, uh, I, had, a, I had a case of self-hatred. And mm. when I became aware of self-hatred, uh, that's when I said, damn, I need to examine this through my work. And that's and through reading, wow. and that's when I found out there's actual name for that. And that name is mental colonialism. Some will think of MJ saying, like, when he changed his um, African uh, features to more European features, everybody was saying, mm -hmm. yeah, he wants to be white. That, I can't speak for what, what his reasoning was. However, right. that is an aspect of what's called mental colonialism. So mm -hmm. I really 
centered that in my work quite a lot. So now to get your question, why is that angel upside down? You know, this angel is this idea and from West Europe, from European, uh, uh, the European canon of what is the ideal and what is pure and what uh, we should strive for. But, you know, in my research, the Catholics and the Jesuits were going into the Congo with King Leopold's men in the late 19th century when there was a big rush for rubber, and they were just genocide. You know, over 2 million Af- black African men, women from the Congo were killed right. with the blessing with <laughs> the blessing with, of the church. With the blessing of the church, because what mm-hmm. they would do is, right before they would die, they would go and baptize them and say, yep. "Hey, we saved these savages from hell, because we we opened the gates of heaven for them." So they rationalized the, this this genocide. And so for me, everything is crazy, and I wanted to show that these power centers were crazy, and I had no respect. So I, up, I literally turned them upside down. So that angel is upside down. It's a fallen angel. And mm-hmm. that, to me, is a more realistic depiction of, uh, of that kind of uh, symbol. Mm-hmm. So and, now, even though we are looking at the show, Matrix 186, virtually, when you speak about addressing your own um, mental colonialism, of course, it makes all of us as, you know, people of color and non-whites think about our own mental colonialism. But before you said that, as I was looking virtually, when I see the images upside down, it kind of puts me in like, I feel like I'm looking into your dreams. Do you feel that dreams and, and um, you know, inform your process as well? Right. It feels dreamy. Well, I want to create a world. I want to actually make the viewer pause because I am creating another reality, another, well, what I call a reality construct. Photographs are used, let me put it this way. Photographs are so powerful that we take them or we mistake them as signifiers, as signs of reality. But they're, they're not. They are, you know, uh, they're like plastic. They're malleable. They, they mm-hmm. can change forms. So... Let me give you an example. Uh, there's something called hegemonic power. Hegemonic power is an all-encompassing power. Uh, to give you an example of fish, if you ask a fish, what is water? Fish may go, boom, 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 boom. water? I don't know what water is while it's floating in water, while water holds life and death over that fish, yet it has no idea. That, to me, is parallel to how photography functions in capitalist culture, in contemporary capitalist culture, through broadcasting images, misleading images, changing the narrative, criminalizing folks, making folks appear that they are hateful, making folks appear that they are less than human, make, you know, all sorts of narratives that power controls. And since we don't question, well, when we look at the photographs, we feel we understand it. We feel it reflects reality. Mm-hmm. So part of the message seeps into us. So what I try to do is shake things up and create a different kind of experience through photography that the viewer has to go, wait a minute, wait, why is this here? What is, what's going on here? 
Why is this image covering that? So you ask questions. Normally, photography gives you, makes a statement. It gives you an answer. So I'm using it to actually ask and pose questions to the viewer so they have to make their way through it. And then the scale, of course, like, you know, the, the images are eight feet high, seven and a half right. feet high. And that one, that one work is 30 feet long. So mm-hmm. you got to walk and you got to, and it's, you, you, you sort of enter, like you were saying, a dream. It's so big, you, the image takes over and you can immerse yourself in, in, in the images. It's almost like the how cinema, because it's so big, you kind of immerse yourself in it. But, uh, so it's not a dream, but yeah, definitely the, the, the unconscious. I'm trying to connect to, to my unconscious, trying to connect to my African unconscious. Now, uh-huh. I, I actually, I actually did have that same feeling of you know this cinematic effect, and just the scale of it makes the details in these works more appreciable. It makes uh, it, it made me to question, uh, you know, why is this inverted? Why is this turned upside down? Why these two images side by side? And I wanted to ask uh, more about, not more so how the work is constructed, but as the artist with this, you know, 30-foot image, um, how much of a role do you play uh, in the in the curation, or do you play a role in that, or do you just kind of let the curator uh, make, you know, take liberty with the work? No, 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 no. no that's a thousand percent me. Mm-hmm. All of that, it, that work took over a year to, to construct. Um, I started at scale models and pairing images and, yeah, just trying to make visual music. So it's almost like, you know, you have an intro and then something gets nice and easy and then things shake up. So as you move and you walk by, there's different kinds of uh, rhythms, visual rhythms. And there's areas where it's darker where I have scenes from um, the tropics uh, mm-hmm. in, in Nigeria, and then uh, there's uh, a, the cells of a slave ship. Um, there's there's different there's different phases, you know. Yeah. No, but I anyway. totally felt that. I I definitely experienced that, and it made me excited that I was able to view it virtually. And, you know, the fact that now we're able to view, you know, each other's art virtually lends to a global type of viewing. But that also made me wonder, is this expected to be um, read, in air quotes, right to left or left to right? Because I feel like the narrative kind of changes depending on what side you start looking at. And, I'm, of course, I'm talking about the 30-foot piece. And I felt I don't know why I felt a little more at ease when I read it from right to left. Well, it was constructed from right to left. Mm. However, it is seamless because once you are in front of the piece and you walk from left to right, the story, it doesn't go in reverse. The tone, the emotional tones shift. Mm. The emotional palette changes. Mm-hmm. So it it, uh, it it reveals itself in a different way. It reveals itself in a different way. Really immersive. And now, some something else too about the image selection. Uh, you know, you chose the the cosmos quite a few times, and you know, just seeing the cosmos printed, just just opposed to you know people in the tropics or a slave ship. You know, it really made me think about how massive our realities are 
mm, how many mm. things there are to consider and how many layers there are to our realities. Well, it's it started, I mean, you may or may not know this. I used to be Michael Jackson's personal photographer. And so this was like from 1979 until 1984, until Thriller. And so I have my archive of MJ work. And I started combining photos of the cosmos with him in a series of work called Exquisite Terribleness. If any of your listeners want to check it out, it's on my website, toddgrayart.com. Or just, if you just Google Todd Gray and MJ, it'll come up. Mm-hmm. So I thought I tried to make a creation story because, uh, for, for Michael because I thought, you know, he is so immensely talented that he cannot be from this planet Earth. This place mm-hmm. is just too horrific. I mean, from, you know, working with Michael as, as much as I did, he would cry, you know, if like an insect got squished. I mean, he was super sensitive. Right. And I thought, you know what? I've got to make an, orig- uh, an origin story for him. And I thought, who has, I thought of Sun Ra. And Sun Ra, in order to escape, you know, his memories and trauma from Alabama, he just told everybody, he, what was it, from Venus, I believe, or Mars? I think he said he was from Venus. Venus or Mars? I think Saturn. No, Sun Ra said he was, maybe Saturn? I think Sun Ra, Sun Ra said he was from Saturn. And I thought, wow, you know what? I'm going to make MJ come from the lineage of Sun Ra. Mm. And, and, I, and that's when I started getting pictures of the cosmos. And then I had these folks, when I did the Beat It, when I shot Beat It, he had real um, gang members from L.A. So I had this photograph of gang members. And I thought, man, you know what? Gang members are always looked down upon, frowned upon by dominant culture. But, you know, these are folks with few options. And so I thought, I'm actually going to put them in the cosmos and sort of say, look, there's infinite possibilities, infinite possibilities. But how is it that with infinite possibilities, so many of us Africans have such limited options? And so it became a wonderful metaphor for me to indict white supremacy, indict capitalism, to say, hey, how come there's infinite possibilities, but we are corralled into very uh, limited futures? Or, or the amount of energy it takes to break those barriers is just immense. So anyway, that's, that, that's, that was the thinking behind my use of the cosmos. And so it came out of the exquisite terribleness series with MJ, and I just think it's just a beautiful thing, and that we can always think back. You know, it's, there's more than just planet Earth, man. There's a, hell of, there's a whole universe out there, and we're part of it. We're all star children. Right. That's a that's a great analogy, uh, especially, you know, your breakdown of velocity. And I can, I can really see just in that commentary and in your previous bodies of work, you know, featuring uh, gang members, featuring people that are uh, looked down upon by the society in general, uh, just as a part of your efforts to, you know, really reify, really reimagine and bring new perspective to how our people are seen. And recognize our humanity, Rec- just right. recognizing our humanity. So yeah, that's that's a that's how it works as a signifier. 
kudos to you, and I hope that everybody who's listening feels as inspired as I do to take a look at my own work, you know, and, and kind of, like you said, think about how is my work adding to the resistance by moving from, you know, what it was last year to what it should be now. So I thank you for your work, and I'm I'm super inspired by this conversation. I really am. Oh, I say thank you, thank you. And also, you know, could you kind of detail how the effects of uh, colonialism and uh, just our history has uh, played into your personal and uh, family life? <laughs> oh man! Because I, so, and just to kind of narrow, and just to kind of narrow the question a bit, you mentioned, uh, you know, like only being able to uh, track your family back about three generations. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I, yeah. I think that that's yeah. a major thing that I don't think a lot of people consider is that you know some people think of history as just kind of being a subject in school. It doesn't have much re- much relevancy, but you know these narratives that you're showcasing affect our actual lives in ways we don't account for. You know. In the early, so so what? I, between Off the Wall and Thriller, I, I, mm-hmm. I worked with Michael. Mm-hmm. And in art school, I did a, a project, a, fo- a photography and text piece. And so a photography, and I did a lot of writing. And basically, I used Michael as an illustration from conversations that I had from him, like telling me to lighten his face when I had to make prints of him in the dark room and things mm-hmm. like that, that he is a um, product of mental colonialism and racial self-hatred. And so I was writing my thesis on this, and then halfway through I had to stop because I said, oh, my God, a lot of the stuff he's doing, I'm doing, you know, where I'm, I'm not celebrating my blackness. I'm tolerating it. I'm trying to show white people how assimilated I am and how Mm -hmm. easily I can slip into um, majority culture, how easily I understand whiteness and how I can uh, really tone tone down, tone down, you know, so I can blend in. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, man, I wasn't even aware of that, you know. It had just crept silently. I thought this is just the only way to get over. And... That really affected my thinking, and that's why I really go heavily, more heavily into mental colonialism. And I encourage your your listeners, if they want to know more about that, but the bluest eye is that Toni Morrison or Toni Morrison? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, Toni Morrison. That and uh, is it white white mask, black face, or black face, white mask by France? Black black skin, white mask. Yeah, I mean these are two books to just become super, you'll, you'll be shocked because you'll see yourself. Huh? Well, maybe you won't see yourself. Maybe you'll see other folks. But I certainly <laughs> saw that. Well, when I was reading it, all I saw was Michael going, uh-huh, see, he, he's like that, he's like that. And I said, oh, me too. <laughs> so, now, yeah, I just, I, I just wanted to put that, put that out there. Um, and that's why that work is called Exquisite Terribleness. Because in our, ter- I mean, we're exquisite, but, you know, majority calls it terrible, which is why we turn it around and make terribleness something like heavy duty. Like, you know, that's why bad came about. You bad. Yeah, hell yeah, right. I'm bad. 
Yes. <laughs> we have that in our nature. We take whatever you give us and we make lemonade. It is what yes. it is, and we're going to drink it, and we're going to eat it, and we're going to be merry, and they can't take our joy. And, you know, that's just, it's our nature. So for the panel discussion uh, that's Thursday at, uh, I think it's uh, 6 p.m. Eastern time mm-hmm. at Wadsworth uh, online, um, we're going to be talking about something called exquisite terribleness. No, 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 no. We're going to be talking about <laughs> We love the exquisite terribleness. We love this theme. I know. We do. Euclidean Grigri. Euclidean Grigri is a series of work uh, that I did before this. Euclidean is Euclid, geometry, rational thought, mathematics. It's pretty much the whole Western notion of thinking is Euclidean thinking. And that's where you, everything has to make sense. Everything has a, has a fine line. Everything is clear. And the gree-gree, that's the juju. That's the funk. That's the mm. spirit. That's the West African. That's the Haitian voodoo. That's, that's, that's using your body, relying on your body relying on uh, your impulses, relying on your intuition. Not, and so I would say Euclidean is neck up and Grigri is neck down, mm-hmm. thinking with your body, your intuition, your whole sense. And so uh, we're going to talk about the work that I was doing, which is I got a Guggenheim grant to photograph imperial gardens in um, Europe that enrich themselves, London, Paris, Lisbon, uh, Brussels, they enrich themselves through African slave trade and African colonies. So I went and photographed these gardens who had uh, uh, came to being because of all the riches that they extracted through Africa. And then I combined them with photographs I've made in Ghana, in Nigeria, and in South Africa, uh, and, uh, and mashed them together. And so that's the Euclidean Grigri. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, even, oh, and so there's a theorist. There'll be two other people speaking. I don't, I don't, uh, I, I don't have that information in front of me. I'm, that's okay. Uh, but uh, they'll, 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 they'll be a, a, it'll, it'll be a lively conversation, um, and we'll be examining um, how photography works on our heads, how we can resist. Um, we can resist power with photography, and we'll also be talking about the gardens and how gardens are a way actually to um, put on display power, to put on display wealth. You know, uh, it'll be, it'll be, it, it, yeah, it'll be pretty, uh, pretty lively. I hope. No, it sounds like a great conversation to tune into, and for all of our listeners who want to hear that, we will definitely have the link in the show notes so that they can go ahead and tune in because, again, you know, the nature of virtual everything is that the whole world is invited. How does that make you feel? Uh, uh, well, I'm glad I'm alive. <laughs> and, so, okay. and part of being alive is going through this historical moment. Yeah. So, and part of this historical moment is going through the virtual. So, in one way, probably more people will see it than would be that could fit into a theater. Right. So, in one way, it's right. uh, it's more inclusive. So, I like I like that it's more inclusive. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, nothing. I mean, for me, I I really like being in a room with folks. Would you mentioning, you know, uh, uh, feeling with your body instead of thinking with your head? Uh, I just wanted to note that, you know, with art, 
a lot of the times I like to engage work emotionally first, and Mm -hmm. then I'll get into all of the intellectual stuff. And I think that's really important not to get too caught up in your head so that you can actually feel what the artist is doing. And just giving your work, giving your work here, like just the image, uh, the image selection, uh, the way certain things are upended and uh, right side up, it it really made me wonder, you know, how you were feeling and how much of a cathartic or uh, therapeutic process this was for you uh, to make this. And it actually brought me therapy to just kind of go through and unpack some of this imagery. I'm sure you must have, um, what, what is that, the one with the child's face and the, uh, yeah. the cosmos and the shark fins? <laughs> Come mm-hmm. on. <laughs> yeah. Um, keep your head to the sky. <laughs> uh, fair game, keep your head to the sky. Uh, that's a nice piece that's in the show. It, I don't know about how therapeutic it was. For me, I want you to feel. I want the viewer to feel. And I always tell myself, man, i got to make work that if my mom just rolls up on it, she gets it. That's, that's really important for hmm. me. I, you, don't, you don't need to be, to have an art education. You don't need to be constantly going to galleries because that's what's so great about photography. It's around us all the time and we understand it. And so that's how I, I start from that base, that every photograph is going to carry a certain kind of emotional or psychological resonance or tonality. And so I mix these tones together, and then I put my head into it. After I play them out, I, I place them, and that's when I start making things smaller, darker, lighter, because I know when, when an image is darker, it's foreboding. It's going to evoke a little sense of mystery or a little sense of fear. So I know that there are ways I can manipulate a photograph to communicate something to the viewer. And so these, so I'm, I'm constantly going, sometimes um, I'll put two things together and I'll go, damn, that works. Damn, that's slamming. I can't explain why. I, my head, I'm in my head, and I can't explain why, but I know it, and that's the gree When I know it, I recognize it, and so I don't want the work to get so staid and so intellectual that that it doesn't swing, that it that it that it doesn't funk, that it doesn't that it doesn't pop. Mm-hmm. It's got to pop. Mm-hmm. It's got to pop. So it's funny that you mentioned how you go through the work first and you sense it. When I go to galleries and museums, I don't read the wall labels first. I right. want to look at the work on its own, and I want to get a sense of how I'm communicating. I want to communicate with that work and see what happens. Then I'll go and read and say, okay, well, what was the artist about? Because really, it's about each individual person. There is no right way. There is no wrong way. There's only each viewer's experience of the work. And that's, that's uh, I just try to try to put out things where, my heart is there, my mind is there, my spirit's there. Thanks life. for listening. This has been Farron Manuel and Tracy Ann Simmons, the Miami Culture Queen, with Todd Gray on his new exhibit, Matrix 186, currently on view at the Wadsworth Athenium Museum of Art through July 18, 2021. Also, be sure to check out more of our content at blackartinamerica.com. And for the collectors listening and future collectors, Be sure to check us out also 
at buyblackart.com. Peace.